Turn your windshield time into learning time. When you're not listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, listen to the next book that is going to unlock something so you can do better in your day-to-day by signing up for Audible. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash audible to get a free book and a free month and learn why it's one of my favorite tools. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore. I get to host the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Who could ask for a better job? And thank you for giving me the opportunity to come to you each and every week with a brand new episode of my favorite topic, And that, of course, is industrial water treatment. Now, people ask me all the time, Trace, how do you figure out what is acceptable to put on the podcast? And that answer is very simple. I'm an industrial water treater. I've been in that industry pretty much my entire life. So if I have used something that will help me in our industry, it is fair game. And I bring those guests to you. I bring those topics to you because they have helped me somehow and I want to make sure that they can help you. That's how they come on the show. That's how I'm always thinking of what I can bring you next. And of course, many of you help me with that, with sharing your show ideas. And I'm always looking for what can I do to help the industry? What can I do to help myself get a little bit smarter on a particular topic? Because let's face it, if you've got your own podcast, why not use it to your own benefit and learn as much as you can? So while you are learning out there in podcast land, I am learning myself. I guess they call that a win-win. Something else I want you to think about is when was the last time you tried something new? Now, when it comes to your job, when was the last time you have tried something new? Has it been a while? Can you not remember the last time you tried something new? And if that's the case, I want to ask, why the heck not? Folks, I'm willing to bet if you have not tried something new in a while, you're probably getting bored. And if you have not heard me say anything on this podcast about our industry, turn your volume up, underscore this, because the bottom line is we are in a cool industry. Our industry should never be boring. And it comes with its own built-in alarm. And that alarm is if you ever feel bored, you are doing this job incorrectly. You're doing it wrong. How do you do it right? Well, you shouldn't be bored because you should always be pushing your boundaries. You should always be trying something new. You should always be trying to learn something else about what you think you know. And yes, I said think that you know, because there is just so much in our industry Even when you think you know something, you learn something else and you realize that you didn't know it at all. And I love it when I get those experiences because that means that I am truly being an industrial water treater. I'm learning something new. I'm pushing myself. And folks, 
I can honestly tell you I have never been bored in this industry. I got set up in this industry pretty well with how to think about this. And I'm sharing all of this with you because this is what my father told me. He told me the day that I thought I knew everything, it was the day that I needed to quit because I was not respecting the industry. If we are not constantly looking at how we can improve ourselves, how we can learn new things, how we can do things better, We are not taking full advantage of this fantastic industry that we are in. So I'm going to encourage you, if your warning light, if your water treatment check engine light is on, and that means that you are bored, take that to the mechanic. And that means you're going to start asking questions. You're going to start figuring out what are some new things that you can do. If all you're doing is servicing the same way over and over and over again, stop doing that. Add something to what you do on a regular basis just because it's new, just because you haven't done it before, and just because you don't know what the result will be. Now, a lot of people might be scared they're going to mess something up. A lot of people might be scared that they're not going to do it perfectly the first time that they do it. Well, folks, if you're scared of that, listen to episode one of this podcast, and that should alleviate you of any fears. Because when you do something the first time, it's probably going to suck a little bit. But the next time it gets better because you learned from that experience and that creates this snowball effect. That creates that first domino that you can push over that creates a chain reaction that you're just going to start learning all of these new things. It is my hope that if you are bored, you are going to make that change today. And let's face it, if you're doing those things and you are still bored in this industry, maybe this is not the right industry for you. Folks, life is too short. Don't force yourself into a dissimilar sized hole, square peg, round hole. That's what I was going for there. If that is the case, recognize that and find something that you love, like I love this industry. Life's too short. Do something you love. You'll never work another day in your life. Speaking of somebody who does what they love and is trying to get us all the time to try new things, at least think about new things, here is a brand new Thinking on Water with James. Welcome to Thinking on Water with James, the segment where we don't give you the answers, we give you the topics and questions for you to think about, drop by drop. Now let's get to it. In this week's episode, we're thinking about how to properly store pH probes. Why is pH probe storage important? What can happen if stored improperly? Can a pH probe be stored dry? Can it be stored in city water or distilled water? What about storing it in pH 4, 7, or 10 buffer solutions? Why would one be better than another? Is there a storage solution designed for pH probes? How might the storage solution be applied to the rubber cover often used to protect probes between uses? Take this week to think about your pH probe and what proper storage means to its accuracy in lifespan. Be sure to follow hashtag TOW22 and hashtag ScalingUpH20 to share your thoughts on each week's Thinking on Water. I'm James McDonald, and I look forward to learning more from you.
Thank you, James. We always appreciate you giving us something to think about, making us a little bit better each and every week. Did you know that next month is August? I'm sure you knew that. But did you know that it is Legionella Awareness Month? Well, it is, and we are going to do everything we can at the Scaling Up H2O podcast to inform you all around the topic of Legionella. Join us each week during the month of August where we will be talking on and about Legionella. Here are some other items that you might want to go ahead and mark on your calendar. And these are other events that are going on that might allow you to learn something new. The Smart Water Summit is taking place August 29th through 31st in San Antonio, Texas. The Smart Water Summit is a quality hands-on experience where people interact with industry leaders such as vendors, analysts, federal agencies, and all sorts of the like. Attendees stay current on all the latest advances in technology by participating in this summit. If this is something that is interesting to you, by all means, mark that on your calendar. And you can always go to our show notes page where we have a link that takes you to right where you need to go so you don't have to worry about taking notes during the show. Another one you might be interested in is the Water Infrastructure Conference. That's September 11th through 14th in Portland, Oregon. Here you can learn all about infrastructure issues and discuss solutions to all the challenges around infrastructure issues. This includes cost-effective strategies, protecting the crucial infrastructure itself, and of course, budgeting, and how do you find capital to maintain these items. If this sounds like something you are interested in, also on our show notes page. And finally, but definitely not least, the StormCon 2022 Expo is going to take place September 26th through 28th in National Harbor, Maryland. StormCon brings together stormwater and surface water quality professionals all over the world where they can share information, making sure that the entire industry is getting better. That also will be on our show notes page. So if any of those make you think, I need to learn some more about anything in any of those particular agencies, by all means, reach out go to the show notes page and figure out what you need to do to take the next step. There are so many different agencies out there that can help us learn more. A lot of us just simply try to find information on our own. It is so much better when you join something and you meet new people that know about a particular topic because now it's a lot more fun. And life's just more fun when it's more fun. Nation, is it just me or is it hard to find people out there? I don't think the problem is going away anytime soon. In fact, there are many people that say that what we are experiencing in the workforce right now is the new normal. So the expression is, I can't wait until things go back to normal. Many think that that's what we're experiencing right now. In fact, if you want to learn more about that topic, you can check out a YouTube video that we've got on our show notes page called The Demographic Drought. 
That's done by economist Ron Hetrick, and it is one of the best explanations that I've ever seen on why we're experiencing what we are in the workforce right now. So being able to understand that, I think you're able to make better decisions. And on that topic, when we do find the right people, we need to make sure that our process is what we need it to be so we can get the right people working with us in our companies. And that's exactly what we are going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about hiring. My lab partner today is Chris Belizzi of EAI Water and fellow Rising Tide Mastermind member. Chris, welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Pleasure to be here, Trace. Chris, I want to thank you because this is a topic that we're going to discuss today with the Scaling Up Nation that we've been discussing at length in the Rising Tide. And you approached me and said, hey, I would really like to lend some help to all the people that are dealing with employment issues and understanding all of this stuff. So uh, I want to thank you for all the knowledge that you are about to bring to the Scaling Up Nation. Well, I appreciate that, Trace. And, uh, you know, it was at the mastermind meeting where a few business owners made comments about really struggling with hiring. and. I thought to myself, well, that's one thing that we don't struggle with and uh, actually have a really good formula for. So I thought it would be great to be able to share some of the successes we've had and the processes we use to you know, attract and retain the best talent that fit our culture. I know what you just said perked up a lot of ears and they cannot wait to hear what you're getting ready to say. But before we get into that, do you mind letting the Scaling Up Nation know a little bit about Chris? You bet. So grew up in the Pacific Northwest, went to school at the University of Washington, where I got a chemical engineering degree. And about two months before uh, graduating, I was completely clueless as to what I was going to do for a profession. But I happened to go to a uh, career fair where Nalco was presenting, and I was sitting in the back wearing my Washington letter jacket, and the uh, Nalco presenter came up to me after the presentation and said, I think you'd be a great fit for this industry. And I had no idea why he felt that way, but I said, if you're talking about golfing with clients and testing some water, then I'm all in. So I uh, joined Nalco right out of college in 1994 and took on a variety of assignments there for about 13 years. I was able to be a, a district manager at a very young age. And so it really forced me into learning how to run teams and grapple with the issue of hiring at a very early age. And I was, I was an open book on how to uh, get better and was presented with some awesome training material. And so... Uh, from that point on, when I joined EAI Water in 2009, you know, I took a lot of the principles that I had learned during that period of time as a manager and had the full autonomy to apply them and have just refined it with, alongside with some of our key management uh, team that's been with me for a long time and really kind of honed our craft on it and um, now really excited to share it. Chris, you mentioned your uh, Kim E, and in talking with other Association of Water Technologies members, the consensus seems to be 
that if you want to be a water trader, you can be a water trader. It doesn't mean what your degree in determines how good of a water trader you are, but it seems like some of the best candidates, I would say, come from either chemical engineers or environmental science engineers. What would you say to that? I would say that that can be an accurate statement. Uh, I think that provides you with a good technical base. And and typically what you're looking for is someone that's passionate about the water industry or mechanical and chemical things. And so those two degrees lend themselves to to showing a, a passion at an early age for the water industry. But I think that um, you can find great candidates outside of those disciplines and also outside of the water treatment industry. And that's one of the things that I think we've done that uh, really has helped us is instead of only searching through the traditional channels for people that have existing water treatment experience, we've said, look at experience, book of business, those things are less of a priority to us than finding the right fit for our culture. And so we've opened our eyes to looking outside of the industry and really looking for the values and and DNA for the, the type of person that succeeds in this industry without any previous experience. Chris, do you mind sharing with the Scaling Up Nation, what's your day-to-day like? Well, over the last two years, my day-to-day has been a whirlwind. Um, about nine months ago, we sold our company EAI Water to the Silmar Group, who I have to thank you for facilitating that introduction because it was via Scaling Up podcast that I was introduced to Michael Warity. And uh, I reached out to him after listening to your podcast. And nine months later, we are working together at EAI Water. Uh, so I'm the general manager of, of EAI Water. And we also started a second company in 2016 called Affinity. And in the Southwest United States, where we are headquartered, as you know, there's a lot of water scarcity issues, and there's also a strong desire for green solutions. And so we wanted to bring to the industry uh, some technology that was proven and reliable, but also innovative. And Affinity is, is our toolkit for reducing water consumption, reducing chemical footprint, and you know, really kind of breaking through some of the traditional barriers that have have been in the marketplace, getting facilities where they want to go with respect to those topics. Well, Chris, let's shift gears and let's talk about what's on everybody's mind. Everybody needs people and they're really hard to find right now. What's going on? Well, I don't know if I have the solution for that, uh, but I think that just lends itself to the topic uh, even more so, and that is that um, I'm going to I'm going to start with a, a, the foundation of kind of my mentors and who I've learned from. But two prominent sports coaches that I have always respected. Uh, one is Herb Brooks, the uh, hockey coach for the 1980 Miracle on Ice USA hockey team, and then Coach Chris Peterson, who was at Boise State University and the University of Washington as well as head football coach. And both of those gentlemen, um, when asked, you know, what do they look for when they're selecting their recruits or their, their hockey players, they both had a very similar answer. And they said that they, they look for values first. They look for the DNA of the right person that fits what they're trying to accomplish more so than the athlete. Obviously, they have to have basic athletic requirements, but really they're talking about you know, what, what a person's made up of and, and, and what they value. 
And so we, I, at an early age, kind of adopted that a similar approach in that I really identified, you know, what are the core values that that clients really buy from over the long term? I mean, it, you, you have to begin with the end in mind, and that's, you know, what is it that clients buy? And when we thought about answering that question, we always came up with, well, number one, they buy trust. And number two, they buy results. And so we thought, well, what, what makes up building trust and delivering results? The trusted advisor gives you a trust equation I've always used. It's a, it's a kind of a great way to illustrate how to build trust. And it's credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-focus. So what that's saying is, is that the client or anybody that you're engaging with to build trust wants high credibility, high reliability, high intimacy, and low self-focus. And so I've used that as the basis for, you know, what DNA goes into finding the right person for our industry. The second piece to that is, is delivering results. As you know, in our industry, our job is to deliver results, but do it through other people because we are only at the facility one to two, maybe three, four times a month at, at most. And these water systems are extremely dynamic. So really, it comes down to being able to get an end result through others. And so there's also some traits that are inherent to delivering results through others. And from really those two things, building trust and delivering results through others, I created a list of 10 attributes that I look for in every candidate. So when I'm looking for candidates, I don't care about their work experience, especially in the water treatment industry. I don't necessarily even prioritize their skill sets at this point in their life. I'm really looking for the DNA of the right person because I figure if we can get them into our team and they fit our culture, then they are going to prosper through our training and development program uh, because we have a really good one. Well, I'm dying to know, what are the 10 traits that you're looking for? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> All right. So, so the non-negotiables, which means uh, when I'm interviewing them, they have to score an eight or higher out of a scale of one to 10. Uh, number one is, is low ego. I think you've mentioned that before. Low ego, that's, that's low self-focus, right? People that are secure in giving other people the credit. People that put team and mission ahead of themselves. To me, that is the number one trait that I look for. I've been in organizations that have not emphasized low ego and kind of look for the most charismatic, high-powered, high-accomplished person in the room. And that can lead to short-term success. But over the long haul, if there's a high self-focus, it tends to, to erode the culture that you're trying to build. Chris, you mentioned you, you rank these one through 10. So what would be an example of how you would scale somebody a one on low self-ego and a 10? Yeah, so in the, I've, I've developed an interview process where I have a list of questions and it's, it's, it's very informal, but I still have a foundational uh, list of questions that help me get to the root of, of people and not really just listen to everything they're saying, but get them to have to back up what they're saying with examples. And one of the ways that you can figure out whether someone's you know, low ego is have them talk about their accomplishments. And you'll get very quickly whether it's all about themselves 
and their sales numbers or what have you, or if they credit the mentoring or mission uh, of the organization that they've been a part of. So the second quality that we look for is high integrity. In our business, it's all about do what you say. And so in the interview process, I'm creating several opportunities that people have to make commitments and then keep them, whether it's a, a calling me at a certain time or doing a small assignment, whether it's writing me a paragraph on somebody that's important to them and why, or whether it's solving a, uh, a mass balance around a DA tank, whatever it is, I'm really evaluating whether they are very astute at keeping their commitment. And the other thing that I don't tolerate is, is any kind of fabrication, right? I've had situations where people may have fabricated their age or experience or what have you, and those are definitely deal breakers. Yeah, I always look at it that if somebody's going to do something unfavorable on the interview, that's where they're supposed to be showing their best self. And if you're seeing that on the interview, my goodness, what are you going to see when they get the job? That's absolutely right. The third thing that we look for is high emotional intelligence. As you know, getting back to that delivering results through others, we deal with a wide variety of personalities and job descriptions from the you know VP of facilities down to the operator responsible for the water treatment program. And the ability to understand yourself and how you see things and your social style, and then also identify what the people you're engaging with, what their social style perspectives are and adjust accordingly is paramount in our industry. You know, as you know, there's no one solution in water treatment. There's a variety of ways to get from point A to point Z. And the person that can read the room and empathetically listen and understand what's being asked for and then make the proper presentation of what, you know, options would be really are very successful in this industry. So that's something that we look for in both sales and service personnel. Chris, I'm reminded a lot about a book I've read by Pat Lencioni called The Ideal Team Player. Have you read that one? I've only read parts of it. So uh, he talks about hungry, humble, and smart. And I think the three you just mentioned, really, that's what that's saying. Hey, do we have people that are hungry to learn, hungry to be part of the team? Do we have people that are humble where it's more about the team and less about them? And are they smart? Can they actually get around people? Can they talk to people? Can they make people feel good and actually miss them when they're not there? I think, uh, I, I think that's those are great things to look for. You know, I am curious, though. I know we're going to talk about the other ones. Do you have any insight on where the best place is to find people that are good candidates for the industrial water treatment industry? That's a great question. So our, our priority is to uh, build through the draft, if you will. We prioritize going to colleges, trade schools, as well as referrals and, and our client base in order to, to really get our candidates. We use recruiters very little. Maybe once in a while, when you need a key free agent acquisition, you use a recruiter. But that is not the predominant mechanism that we go looking for candidates. I was breaking down the team that we have right now and about 40% of them came through referrals. And what I mean by that is people on our team, because, because we have embraced this OKG, as we call it, philosophy, and OKG stands for our kind of guy or our kind of gal. 
everybody on the team knows exactly what their identity is. And I'll get into that a little bit later as to how we reinforce that. But because we're all conscious, competent of knowing that we're looking for OKGs, a lot of times, and it's very rewarding to me, a teammate will come to me and said, you know what, I have a client that's an OKG. You've got to interview this guy. And I'll go interview him. And, you know, about about 20% of our roster is made up of clients. About 40% of our roster is made up of, you know, friends of friends. And that's the other thing is OKGs have a tendency to have, you know, contacts with other people that are that have these qualities, you know, and only only about 20 percent of our roster comes from, I would say, a a recruiting source. The remaining 20 percent comes from colleges and trade schools where we go similar to how I got into the industry. We will go introduce ourselves, talk about the water space and our company and look around the room for candidates. A lot of times we'll start them out as interns. So you get extremely economical help and eager help. And you get them at a young age, appreciating the work opportunity, but it's also a super extended interview process for us. So we, we hope we're getting the right intern, but even if we don't, we have about a year to evaluate them and decide, did we make the right call here or not? Something you said that I, I want to unpack a little bit is you said you look around the room and I have heard so many times people will buy a spot at a college job fair and they will set up a table, maybe even put some brochures on there, put a chair behind the table and they spend almost the entire time looking on their phone or not really being intent. And they said that was a waste of money. It doesn't sound like that's how you approach this. It's not. You know, it's no different than when you go to an AWT conference and you're walking through the hotel and you're like, oh, that person's in the water space. That person's in the water space. You know, everybody has a look, male or female. It's 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 interesting. Maybe it's just me. I, I have a radar that that picks up on on that. But uh, yeah, absolutely. You have to be active. And, and if you know what you're looking for, then when you see it in the room, you go get it. You don't wait for them to come to your table. Absolutely. All right. So we started out with a couple. Let's continue on with the 10. Some additional ones that, uh, well, the last non-negotiable is uh, an acronym we use called RFC. And it's got an expletive in it. So I'll just say it stands for really effing cares. There we go. You've got a similar acronym. When I was talking to you about this about a month ago, you said you have an acronym. uh, I think it's GAS, right? G-A-S. GAS, which is give us stuff. Yes, give us stuff. Exactly. So, you know, what does that mean? Go ahead. You tell me in, from your perspective, because I think it means really the same thing. Well, I will tell you that. Uh, so we have we have five core values. Gas is one of them. And I'm going to be totally upfront. I went to Aquaphenic Scientific and gas was one of their core values. And when we were rewriting our core values as a leadership team, I mentioned that. And my team just fell in love with it. And we tried to wordsmith that. And we just couldn't find anything that had the same meaning. So we were like, you know what? We're going to honor Aquaphenic Scientific and we're going to go with it. And we went with it. And then we started defining all of our core values. And as we defined gas, it took away from it. So it's our only core value that is not defined. You either have it or you don't. You either get it or you don't. And I will tell you, when we have our leadership meetings, it is a requirement that we identify how our core values are being followed by our team of the previous week. 
And are our customers commenting on our core values? They have no idea what they are, but they might say, hey, so-and-so did this, and that's a direct tie back to our core value. Nine times out of 10, customers are always saying something about the gas core value. And my favorite one that happened uh, not too terribly long ago was there was one of our one of our team members, he had dropped a pillow packet behind all of the, the drums and everything. And okay, well, I don't want to leave that trash there. So he moved everything out and it was just a mess. Just things that had fallen back there, other things uh, that other people had left. So he cleaned all that out. And then he had a three by three clean spot in this huge mechanical room. So it stuck out like a sore thumb. So he decided to sweep up the entire room and luckily for us, right at that moment, the guy that was in charge of giving us that account walked through the door and he about fell on the floor because he had never seen a contractor pick up a broom. So, uh, and, and he called me immediately and he said, okay, if you guys are taking care of my floor this good, I just can't imagine what you're doing with the water treatment. And that was him recognizing gas. So, so yes, we have a similar one. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. That's such a great example. And you hit it right on the head. I mean, what I look for is people's pride in craftsmanship, right? Whether it's the work that they do, how clean their vehicle is or presentable things are. It's it's really how how much they care about developing themselves and and the image and brand that they bring to the organization. Chris, let me ask, when somebody drives up for an interview, do you try to make an opportunity to walk them back to their car so you can see what it looks like? Or is that just me? No, I do. I mean, I've done it. Uh, and, I, and I give people grace because I know there's been times where my car has been a pit and uh, it, it's not a good reflection. But um, yeah, I mean, they're all data points, right? You're always looking for various data points to validate whether somebody really takes pride of ownership. Well, tell us about your fourth core value there. The last non-negotiable is a passion for mechanical and chemical things. Uh, that could range anywhere from people that are passionate about fixing their motorcycles or their vehicles, you know, to hot water heaters. Uh, we have a joke, if you can fix a hot water heater and you want to have a beer with them, then that's a good sign that you want to continue to talk to that person as far as being a candidate. But they have to have a passion for technical things. And the reason that that's important to me, as opposed to maybe having the, the experience and skills, is that if you're passionate about something, you are going to invest yourself into getting better. You always want employees that partner with you in developing themselves. Yes, you want to have a great training curriculum and process to mature people's careers. But at the end of the day, the people that really flourish are those that, that take ownership of their development. And that means reading their textbooks at night. That means on the weekends, you know, maybe they're honing their craft somehow. So if people have a passion, they're going to get better over time. And that's really what we look for, not so much what they currently possess in their skill set. That reminds me of some comments that another mastermind member, Russell Baskin, has made to me several times. And he says the commonality with the people that really work well at his company are people that like to work on their cars. And he looks for that. As do we. Again, it, it shows that uh, we, we have some guys that are fantastic mechanics. <laughs> and uh, sometimes it's it's like the water treatment gig is a, is a side job, but uh 
it's definitely a good indicator that they're engaged with mechanical and chemical things. So those are the four non-negotiables. Let me ask, what is the bar for that? So you say you rank them one to 10. Is there a certain number that you're not going to go any lower than that and move on? With those ones, I need to see a eight or higher. Then I have a second set of four that I look for at least a five and higher. Can you tell us about those? You bet. Work ethic, right? You got to put in the work. We have a job that is got the utmost in freedom, which is awesome. So you can structure your work life around your personal life. But at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road for the client, uh, you want people that are willing to put in the work. So work ethic is one that I'd like to see a five or higher. Chris, let me ask, how would you ascertain a five or higher? What, what's an example of how, and during the interview process, you're going to determine if this person has the work ethic that you're looking for? Yeah. So again, I always structure things to where I need to see demonstrated examples because in an interview process, people have mastered the art of telling you exactly what you want to hear. That's called lying, by the way. <laughs> right. So, you know, examples would be, I really get them to describe to me what their current job is. And sometimes I'll even ask them, what's your typical work week and, and how many hours are you working? But there's a, just a variety of ways to, to uncover what their perception of a, of a solid work week is. And, you know, it's got to fit with what we typically ask for from our employees. A couple of the other ones that I'd like to see a five or higher on are one that we call got your six, which means got your back. And that is someone that is highly affiliated, right? That really identifies with being with a team that will put teammates in front of themselves. If someone calls them and says, hey, I really need your expertise on this topic, or could you come you know, see this client with me? We do a lot of that. We do a lot of team uh, approach to w whether it's sales or service. And so people that, uh, again, it goes back to a little bit about not caring about who gets the credit, being more about team than self. Got your six is just something that solidifies that this is a person you want in a foxhole with you. The other one that I've found to be important in our industry, and maybe more so on the, on the sales side than the service side, is social, what I call social leadership. In our industry, people that are successful are those that are very comfortable initiating the relationship. It doesn't mean you have to be chatty Cathy, but it means that you're very comfortable walking up to somebody and asking them about their day, breaking through that initial task tension that exists with a stranger and, and um, you know, pursuing the relationship. Again, because we're dealing with such a wide variety of people and we're trying to drive results through others. You want people that are comfortable initiating relationships and therefore, you know, fostering the trust over the long haul. Chris, let me tell you something about your team and that value. I got to meet, was it eight members you sent out to Seattle at the AWT training a couple of months ago? That sounds about right. What you just described, I witnessed. They, they all came up, introduced themselves to me. Uh, they invited me out with them. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I've got a pretty pretty busy schedule during that time, so I had to decline. But I, but they were just they were just so open, and they wanted to invite me in to their group. 
I was witness to that. It was fantastic. You got a great team. That's awesome to hear. And some of that's due to your rock star status on the West Coast. I, I, I'll let you know that we we use scaling up as a training mechanism many times. We, once a week, we, we have a topic that we, whether it's a technical topic or a sales topic or a leadership topic, and scaling up has just been a major blessing to us in terms of growing our team and really getting them excited about the industry. In fact, quick story, Justin Reyes, who's been with me for 20 some years, about five years ago, he said, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of burning out in the industry. I might start to look elsewhere. And he started to listen to scaling up. And after about a year of it, he was like, you know what? I'm reinvigorated. This is great. I feel like I'm in a great industry. I feel like a professional. And that was a big component to it. So thank you for that. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's amazing. I felt that way. That's why I talk about that. I have felt that, hey, wash, rinse, repeat, that's my job. And I realized, okay, I'm not taking advantage of everything this job has to offer. You know, if you're if you feel that you are getting burned out, you're doing the job wrong because there is never a boring day in this job unless you allow it to be boring. Another trait that we look for is competitive drive. In our industry, as you know, it's competitive. People are, um, if you don't do a great job for the client, they're going to look elsewhere or have somebody else that's pursuing them that, that is trying to open the door, right? So you want people that are competitive. You want people to think of their clients as, they, you know, as their children. You want them to care about winning and losing. And so competitive drive obviously uh, is, a, is an indicator that, uh, that they're going to care and that they view life as a scorecard to some degree and, you know, are going to be engaged with producing more wins than losses. And then the last one is, is aptitude for mechanical and chemical things. We talked about the passion component, but you do have to have an aptitude. So there's a variety of things. I, I mean, I've interviewed some great people that the only piece that they didn't have was the aptitude for, you know, mechanical and chemical things. And again, it doesn't have to be specific to the water industry, if they've got hobbies that they do outside of the water industry, then that's a great sign that they have some aptitude, right? But you've also got to uncover whether they can do basic math and count the drops of M indicator and then multiply by 40 and things of that nature, right? So, you know, there's some little, little assignments that I give people just to make sure that they can, you know, handle the, the mathematical piece, the chemical piece, the mechanical piece. So if people are trying to take notes on those, I want to make sure I have that on my show notes page. And I'm sure everybody's thinking, oh, the things you just described, that is the model employee. I wish that that is what everybody had. So I know you sold everybody. And I'm also sure the Scaling Up Nation's thinking, okay, well, how does this fit into a process? You know, if we actually get somebody in this market to find us or we find them, how does it all lay out so we actually, at the very end, know we have the right person for the job? So there's a couple of pieces to that. There's the interview process itself, which I'll break down for you. And then there's the, once they're on the team, how do we create an environment where OKG is our identity and we reinforce that identity? To the interview process, 
we do an extensive interview process. Uh, so if someone's in a hurry, it's probably not going to be a good fit for us. I typically talk on the phone with people two to three times. Again, I start out typically very informal and just get people talking about themselves and their background and going through, you know, chronologically their their life. And I look for certain things, obviously, that we've been talking about. Uh, once we're done with the phone interviewing stage, uh, they do a field ride with one of our team members that I think is the appropriate fit for them. And I'll get the team members' feedback on that ride. That also gives the candidate a great insight into what the day-to-day activities are of, of our team. Um, and sometimes we'll do two field rides. If we have the luxury of time, the more you expose the candidate to multiple team members and get multiple feedback on how it's gone, number one, the candidate just continues to learn about what we do and will identify whether it's the right fit. But then you, you're really honing in on that emotional intelligence piece, which is can the person that's the candidate you know, process who they're, who they're meeting with, their social style, did they fit well, did they build commonality? Etc. So after the field ride component, then we usually have a final interview where I involve other leadership team members for their final vote on the person. And at that time, really the last step is we uh, typically have the the candidate and their spouse or partner to a dinner to make sure that you know the other half meshes well with our other halves and it's going to be a smooth fit. So it can be a one to three month process. It all depends on their timing and our timing. And obviously each situation is different. There's times we move faster than others. But at the end of the day, my job is not to compromise on the process just because I've got a job opening or, you know, the the, the candidates saying that they're pursuing three other opportunities. And that's where our salesmanship has to come in. To, to sink the hooks in and get them really excited about what we can offer them so that they stay engaged and they don't commit somewhere else. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to extend the interview process as long as I can, uh, because the more you touch somebody, the more you get to know them and how they respond to certain situations. And it's just like I said about that internship. I mean, at the end of a one year long internship, you're going to know exactly what that person is about and whether they'd be a great fit for your team. So the longer the interview process, the better. The art is in managing your expectations and their expectations and not losing people along the way. Chris, there's an old adage out there, hire slowly, fire quickly. Is is that basically what you're saying here? Well, I believe in the hire slowly. Uh, the fire quickly, we could debate for another podcast. Fair enough. But uh I get the premise of the, of the saying, absolutely. Hire slowly is definitely a key ingredient. So in hiring slowly, let's unpack some of those items. So the phone calls, should they all be phone calls? Should they be video calls? What are some of the, th- I know you, you told us the core value, so you're crafting questions around that. How important are facial expressions when you're asking these questions? Absolutely. I try to create as many different scenarios and environments as possible to understand the person that I'm interviewing. And so, yes, uh, Zoom sessions versus phone calls, you know, informal talks versus formal talks, small assignments. Again, I can't tell you how many, I try to throw in three to six small assignments throughout the phone call or or face-to-face interview process. 
All right, tell me, tell me about that. I'm dying to hear about that. What are some of these assignments that you would give them? You know, I always want to check their writing skills as well. So I'll have them write a paragraph about somebody that's meant a lot to them. And I want to see, obviously, if they can construct a paragraph, how they're spelling. You know, the other thing I look for is spelling. Again, you, you mentioned this earlier. It's an interview process. If you're not putting out your best behavior and your best self during the interview process, then when are you going to get down the road? Right. So if you can't use spell check to check for grammatical errors, I mean, that drives me <laughs> that drives me nuts when I get a spelling error. It makes me think that they don't care that is this is this really an RFC? Again, I, I give grace. But if you see it more than once, then clearly they were either not focused or they don't care. And because I know I would review everything that I am putting in front of uh, at, you know, a job opportunity, I would review everything four times before I submitted it. Yeah, I always love it when I see a resume with typos in it. Come on, guys, it's your resume. (laughs) By the way, you're not getting a call back from me if you've got misspellings on your resume. Exactly. What are some of the other assignments you might have them do? Well, one that I've always done and I learned from my first boss in the industry was having them do a a mass balance around a, a DA tank. So we have a water stream coming in with a certain conductivity a water uh, from the soft water and the condensate return and then the and then the outlet. So you want to see if you know you, they can do a basic in in equals out mass balance and figure out what the conductivity of the outlet water is for example. Um, and that tells me that they've got some technical aptitude. I also even if they get the problem wrong, I want to see how they talk through it. Do they get frustrated by it? Do they make fun of the assignment? Do they belittle it? Or do they ask questions? If they're great questions, then they don't have to get the assignment right. I'm just looking for how they responded to the situation and do they have some basic aptitude. Do you give them any reading material and they've got to come back with questions? Absolutely. That's another one. I'll have them read a, whether it's a technical article or maybe it's an article or something that was written uh, from someone that you know, that we view as an OKG. And I I just want to see how well they affiliate with what they've read. Does it resonate with them? How do they see it? Because again, if they resonate with it, then that tells me a lot about whether they're going to embrace our culture or not. I think this is great. And I could just hear people speaking into their car speakers saying, well, if I, this all sounds great, but if I wait this long to hire the employee, they're going to lose interest or there's other people that are competing with them. And I'm not going to be able to keep the proverbial fish on the hook. You said you have to set expectations up front during the whole process. How should we be doing that? What should we be saying? Well, here's a fundamental mindset shift that I believe in. I am always looking to interview people. I never stop. If I'm the person that's responsible for the culture of this team, then my number one priority is who comes on the bus. And so I don't wait to start interviewing candidates when I have a job opening. I am interviewing candidates every week, every month, all year long, because it's my number one function. And so you become proactive at that point because it's a priority. And you, what you do is you develop a bench of people that you have in the process. It's no different than probably how you, you know, would coach a salesperson on a, a sales pipeline or sales pyramid, right? You've got people in various 
levels of the sales process, whether you're in the relating phase or the, the discovery phase. And I just work that all year long. And, you know, I'm, I'm up front with people. There's a lot of times where I'll say, look, right now we don't have an opening, but I, I flat out tell them, look, I am always looking for what we call an OKG. And so I'd like to have a conversation with you and follow up with that and just keep keep the fire stoked. If you find it that what I'm saying to you is is in line with your values and, and what you want to accomplish in your career, and I feel the same way about you, then let's just stay in touch. And you never know when the right opportunity is going to occur. The other thing that that does for you as a, as a hiring manager or, or business owner is that it, it puts you on offense. If you have a bench of, of potential OKGs that you feel really strong about, when you have a culture problem on the team, whether it's a poor performer or a poor attitude, you're much more likely to, to confront the situation and deal with it and not worry so much that if you're going to lose that employee because you know you've got two to three excellent candidates on the bench waiting to become part of the team. And it, it really helped me become a more effective leader of the organization because nobody likes to, to really confront those poor attitudes or poor performers. It's a, it's a difficult task, right? But when you know you've got the ability to s- replace that person with someone that obviously is likely a better candidate, you have a, a, a different mindset as the person responsible for that decision. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. You know, you mentioned the ride-alongs. I love that because you're interviewing somebody that has no idea what you're telling them. They have no context. So you're taking people out. They're doing the ride-along. What are some of the things you want to make sure that they see during that ride-along? Yeah, so the person that they're riding with, I usually have a discussion with the day before. And the goal is to get them to two to three locations during the day. Obviously, we want them to see the down and dirty of what we do. So I usually have them go to a place that maybe doesn't take very good ownership of their program. And we've got to be very hands-on and it's dirty and ugly because we want to see how that person reacts in that environment. And then we'll also ideally take them to a a very well-run client uh, so they see the, the more consultative side of what we do and how rewarding it is to to lead a water management team through whether it's you know the, the the return on investment projects they're working on or what have you we want them to be exposed to every level in the organization that we deal with from the operator to the you know director of engineering and so again that's kind of what we're shooting for in the ride along but i'm also telling the folks on our team and they're used to it now because we've done it enough, you know, evaluate, do they show up on time? You know, how are they dressed in terms of, you know, did they, did they look like they, you know, came ready to, to work? Uh, did, did they show propriety or did they ask great questions all day long? Did they engage with the client themselves? Did they step into a task and help you out? Um, all those things, again, give me data points on the nine to 10 things that we're trying to evaluate them on. And then you meet with your team members. You said you had maybe a couple of people that are riding along with them. What are some of the things that you're asking your current team about maybe hiring this new team member? So that kind of gets into the second piece that I was going to talk about is how, how do you perpetuate the OKG mentality in, in your organization? Because to me, OKG isn't just a, a, a mantra for the type of person we hire. It really, it really defines our, our identity. Uh, and, and 
so everybody on the team is very conscious, competent about what an OKG is and what we're looking for. So we're speaking the same language, kind of like the, the the same reason you would take Wilson Learning and, and do counselor salesperson, right? It's fundamental information and skills, but it, it's really all about a common language and making people conscious, competent on how to re- reproduce a sales process. And so I've taken the same approach with OKG. It doesn't just stop at the hiring uh, piece. We we use OKG in our annual performance reviews. We actually have the list of nine qualities and we have the employee rank themselves in those categories. And then we have the management team rank the employee in those categories. And then we have a discussion about it. And we talk about examples. Why did you rank yourself this way? And here's how we see you. And here's the opportunities you have to to become more low ego or to become to improve your emotional intelligence because quite frankly people could sit here and say yeah you've just rattled off a unicorn that person doesn't exist right you know so you're going to be looking forever for the person that fits these nine qualities or so and that that's not necessarily true but it all comes back to the the nature versus nurture right if the person um, maybe they scored a five you know, just above a five in some of these categories, it's very hard to have someone really possess all nine of these qualities at a high, high level. So the next thing you can do is make them aware of how important it is to the organization. And then they can start to get better at it. If if they're aware, that's step one, right? Then if you're coaching them on, well, here's, here's how we see you improving in, in this area, you know, take this course, take this personality quiz and understand yourself better. That way they can grow. So so we use OKG in annual performance reviews to reinforce the message that this is our identity. And then we also use OKG in our annual awards ceremony. We don't just focus on you know who sold the most or who retained the, the highest customer satisfaction. We have OKG awards where we pick specific examples that occurred during the year that demonstrate they had somebody's back or that demonstrate that they RFC or that they demonstrate that they had high emotional intelligence or social leadership. And we'll give them an award for that. So at the end of the day, the team has become very aware of OKG and what we're looking for. And they become your eyes and ears. They are as engaged in this as you are. And the cool thing about it is, is that they, they know what to look for at a certain point. Right. And so when they're doing these ride alongs, they're talking to me just like you and I are talking about, hey, did you see this quality or what's the red flag? Why wouldn't you hire this person and let them talk about that? So when they're doing ride alongs, it's very valuable to to get other team members exposed and, you know, they'll set the bar for you. Chris, I have heard that people have had great success with the last part of your process that you mentioned, which was inviting the significant other and and meeting them and and getting to know more about them. So people are listening to that. They might think that sounds brilliant. They might be wondering how you do that. Are there legal ramifications around that? So share with us what you do and then what you hope to gain by doing that. So I think that the mindset is, is that we're trying to un- understand how well the entire package, the partner, the spouse fits in with, with the team's mentality as well, right? Um, you're trying to understand the dynamic of, of both of their careers 
and which which one fits with the other and which one may take priority over the other. You're trying to understand the level of drama that either that person might be dealing with or the level of drama that that spouse slash partner might bring to the team with your spouse or partner. So what we do is we get them out to a nice dinner. It's also a great excuse to expense a nice uh, meal with some some beverages perhaps and, and really allow people to let their guard down and see how naturally it fits. And if there's some tensions that's created by the other half, then that's just a good indicator that Again, everyone's on their best behavior during an interview process. So if there's some tension that's created during that type of you know interview or environment, then you can expect that there'll be even more of that drama down the road. So those are the things that we look for. And um, you know, it's proven to be a very valuable final step in the evaluation process because we've I've met some great people that just unfortunately it, it, they had a tough situation and you know it, it really distracted them from having a, a solid uh, career. I think it's a great step. I think it's a missing step. And if you truly have the culture that you're describing, you know, the the significant other has to buy into that as well. So I, I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think more people should be doing it. Uh, I know I've invited people and I can think of only a handful that said yes. They thought it was weird. And I think it's weird that they think it's weird. You're getting ready to join our team. We're going to be part of this person's you know, life. Don't, wouldn't you want to know as much as you possibly could? So I've never been able to understand that, but I think it's great that it's one of the things that you do all the time. Chris, I'm curious. I mean, you've got this down. You've got a great team. You've proved that by sending them to class in my class, and I, and I met them. I can see that this works, but I'm sure you can do everything that you're supposed to do, and sometimes it just doesn't work. So I'm curious, do you have any funny stories where this just didn't work? I don't necessarily have a funny story, but I can say that uh, we all make mistakes, and you know you, that's where as a hiring manager, you have to have a peer group, you have to involve other people in the process and and bounce perspectives and ideas off of each other. Because we all have blind spots and we all have a tendency to hire in our own image. And that's not always a recipe for success. I've made some mistakes with maybe hiring people that uh, had on paper all the qualities I was looking for uh, but, the, you know, they they just ended up not really identifying with the day-to-day environments that we work in. Uh, maybe they thought of themselves a little more of like a professional engineer or a consultant and weren't willing to get down in the trenches and do some of the things that we're all asked to do. And so that's sometimes hard to pick up in the interview process and therefore it has led to some mistakes. But in general, this really should minimize the amount of mistakes that you make, which is all we're trying to do, right? We're, we're, we're always trying to refine a process and optimize it and uh, have more successes than failures. Chris, if you just get one point across to the Scaling Up Nation today, what do you want that one point to be? Prioritize hiring the right values and behaviors over experience and book of business. Put yourself in a position as the hiring manager where you're, you're, you're in a position of offense, where you've got a bench of people you know fit your culture, 
and it'll allow you to be the leader and manager without fear that you want to be. Great advice. And I, I love how you said, always be hiring. You're always looking. You're always making sure that you've got the next player or players available. Such good, great advice today. I still have some questions for you. These are our lightning round questions. So let's go ahead into that. So my first question for you if you could go back to your very first day as an industrial water treater, what advice would you give yourself? Always assess whether your client's in lockstep with you. My challenge has always been to pour more of myself into situations than perhaps the person I'm dealing with. And as you know, as a water treater, you could drive... 10 projects at one time. You could write a three-page report that's got every technical reference in the book. And if your client isn't valuing it, then you really have an opportunity to spend your efforts elsewhere rather than viewing every client like you have to provide eight or nine value-added projects at a time and write two-page reports. There are clients that respect that and are in lockstep with that and, and truly value that. And you'll know who they are. The ones that aren't, I would just say, evaluate whether that's where, where your time should be spent rather than you know creating an 80-hour work week for yourself. What are the last few books that you've read? Not a big book reader, Trace, I'll be honest. Uh, the Daryl Amy book I thought was incredible. We did that for the Mastermind team. You're referring to Revenue Growth Engine, and that was a phenomenal book. I'm curious, how have you used that book? You know, the biggest takeaway for me was focus on the outcomes for the client and not yourself. He told that story about if you were on a date and the person just talked about themselves all night long, would you want to go on a second date with them rather than the person that was more engaged with you know, what's going on in your life and how, how they possibly could be of value to that? Um, it really hit home for me as a great example because nobody would want to go on a date that uh, the person talked about themselves. So the takeaway for me was, you know, I, I, I went and reviewed all of our sales presentations and lo and behold, a lot of them focused on, hey, here's what we, here's our, you know, uh, three uniques, here's our this, here's our that. And it didn't focus on the client's outcomes until maybe way down in the presentation, uh, so I kind of went back and revamped and started the presentations out with those outcomes and then finished with them as well. So you're kind of doing an outcome sandwich to reinforce the message that uh, you can deliver the outcomes for the client. So I thought that was very valuable. And, you know, I, I'm much more of a podcast guy than a, than a book guy just because of my short attention span. Well, pretend I just asked the question, what are some of your favorite podcasts? You know, besides scaling up, of course, I got a good throw answer. That at you. Great answer. I <laughs> uh, really enjoy Entree Leadership. I think Dave Ramsey started that and uh, has just fostered um, a culture of, of other interviewers that uh, do a fantastic job. They have great guests, and I'm always learning something about how to run my business uh, from that or just, you know, identifying with the, uh, the stories that I hear. And then another one that I, I listen to regularly is called Every Man's Ministries, and that's by Pastor Kenny Luck. And he's, he's our men's pastor, and he focuses on the challenges that men face in today's world. And it's just a great, uh, it's kind of similar to the Mastermind 
uh, group in that, you know, you've got a weekly podcast, you've got a group of people that you're accountable to, that you can identify with, that are in a certain, you know, have certain commonalities as you, and really you can vent to them, get their perspectives, get their accountability, and just make yourself a better person. Chris, you brought up the mastermind. I want to ask, because a lot of people have this question, you're a busy guy. You do not have time to spend an hour a week in the mastermind, but yet you do. Why do you do it? And what does it allow you to do? I think in any job, there's times where you feel like you're on an island, like you're the only one dealing with the problems that you're facing. And the reality is, is that that's not true at all. That's a, that's a myth. And when you get into a group like Mastermind, you quickly learn that other people have faced the same challenges you have, and they've also learned lessons, right? And so what better way to maybe shortcut your own hardships by learning from others that have had similar challenges, have already gotten great advice, have already tackled the situation successfully and improved their life and adopt those ideas from them and really you know, just, just continuously improve. To me, it's extremely valuable time spent and I wouldn't trade it. So you didn't have the hour to spend in the beginning, but now because every week you spend the hour, you're now saving hours because you're starting on step six instead of step, step one. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, before Mastermind, obviously, I would always meet with our leadership team on a regular, regular basis. But, you know, the, you're only getting, again, every organization has blind spots and you get comfortable with how the dynamics between you and the people close to you. And when you're in the mastermind, you've got people you've never met before, different parts of the country, different roles and responsibilities, and you're able to learn from their perspectives and their experiences. It just broadens the, the voices that you're hearing and the perspectives you're getting, which makes you better. When Hollywood writes a script about your life, who do you want to play, Chris? Sly Stallone. There you go. Not not because we share the same physique, but because the Rocky mentality of the Italian underdog uh, with the passion to uh, compete at the highest level, that resonates with me, always has. My final question, if you had the ability to talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? I would like to talk to our founding fathers. I am not into politics, but I would really like to understand, like maybe be in a, a saloon with those folks, right? And and just the casual conversation that went into the, you know, why did we leave England? What are we trying to create here? What are we going to put together to prevent uh, where we were at uh, before? I would just like to learn that from them and their time and their perspective so I can appreciate it, number one. And number two, so I can represent it today better than I do. I, I, I don't know everything that went into um, the Constitution. And there's a lot of times where uh, you're in a social situation and you'd like to you'd like to speak to the really what was the intent. And so that's who I'd like to meet with. Well, and Chris, thanks for coming on the show. This is a topic that I really think you uncovered well. And again, people are thinking, okay, well, I don't need to hire now, so I'm not worrying about it. Okay, it's been two years since I hired the last person. Let me dust off everything and see if I can remember what went right and what went wrong. 
And you've just shared so much with the, how the organization has to think when you actually go through the process, what that process has to be. And then above all else, you never stop doing it. It's always your job. Thank you so much for sharing that on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Well, you're welcome, Trace, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it. Chris, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that with the Scaling Up Nation. You know, in addition to Chris being a great hiring manager, a great water treater, Chris is married and he has four daughters. Now, here's the cool thing. Two of his daughters are actually in the water treatment industry and I think that's the dream. You know, all of us go home and we tell our family about our day, but just imagine his family actually understands what he's telling them. So that is just fantastic, Chris. I know that had to make you proud when two of your daughters decided to go in the industry. And if you're wondering, they actually don't work with his company. They're in other companies. So how cool is that? I bet Thanksgiving dinner just has a whole new level when you add water treatment to the mix. Well, as you heard Chris mention, he is a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. And you might be wondering, why would somebody come on the podcast and share with all of the Scaling Up Nation some techniques, some processes, some procedures that they are doing very well that, quite frankly, gives them a competitive advantage over other people, other people that they compete with? Well, it's because of the mindset, and the mindset is a rising tide raises all ships. And just imagine if the entire water treatment industry was better because we were sharing knowledge with each other. We all know that there's no secret sauce out there, and if we think we have a secret sauce, you're soon going to discover all it is is Thousand Island dressing. With that in mind, life is easier when we do it with other people. And I am sure as you heard Chris talk about his experiences and share all of the great things that he shared with us during this podcast, your opinion of Chris has gone up tremendously because people like to help people that help people. So is that you? Is that something that you're doing on a regular basis? Are you out there giving as much as you are trying to take? Now, there are different ways that you can do that. Uh, the group that I've been a member of for years is the Association of Water Technologies, and I've tried to give to that organization. And I will be very honest with you, I have received way more than I have ever given to that organization, but I've never had that mindset. I've never gone in there thinking that I was going to take more than I was giving. In fact, I never even worried about taking. I always worried about what I could give and other people saw me give and they wanted to reach out and help me. Now, I've been a member of a mastermind myself for at least 10 years, and I've always put myself in groups like that so I can learn what I didn't know I didn't know. It's my hope that you are volunteering somewhere. You are trying to give back to this great industry that we are in, but it's also my hope that you are not doing life alone and you have a group of advisors that you can help solve issues with. If you are trying to do that alone, 
you might be successful, but it's not going to be as fun and it's definitely going to take longer. Now, obviously, I'm going to tell you to go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if the Rising Tide Mastermind is the right group for you. But above all else, I want you to find a group. I want you to find a person. I want you to make sure that you can talk about issues and process them outside of your company so you can get a different perspective. And the cool thing is, is you might find somebody that's already gone through the issue that you're experiencing and they can give you the exact solve. They can tell you all the things not to do that they messed up on so you don't have to spin your wheels. You could get out of the gate with immediate traction and maybe even all the steps of what you have to do. Now, why would somebody give you something like that? Because when you join a group like that, we are all trying to improve each other. If we improve each other, by default, that helps us improve. And you saw that today with Chris coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast and telling everybody about his procedures that he has done very well and he does a lot better than most of us. And now you're gonna be able to take that and use that to your advantage. So nation, underscore, bottom line, life's too short to do it alone. Life is too short to try to do things when other people can help you do them and get there faster and further than you ever could on your own. So why not start talking to each other and why not check out the Rising Tide Mastermind again by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind. Nation, people are always asking me how they can help me with this podcast. And the answer is always one, continue listening. If we don't have listeners, we do not have a podcast. If we do not have show ideas, well, we also don't have a podcast. So if you have an idea for a show, if you have a guest that you want me to reach out and interview, please let us know about that. Go to scalinguph2o.com, navigate over to our show ideas page, and tell us all about it. Of course, if you also don't mind, something that helps us tremendously, and I'm not sure if you all in the Scaling Up Nation know how much this really helps our ratings, but when you go and write a review about this podcast, it changes everything in our podcast world. It allows our podcast engines that we use, all the hosting sites, to actually bump us up so people can find us a lot easier. So if you don't mind taking 10 seconds on whatever podcast player you choose to use and write a quick review, it will help us tremendously, which means we're going to find more people, which means we're going to add to the Scaling Up Nation, which means we're going to get more ideas for this podcast. And it means that we are making the water treatment industry just a little bit better because we are all learning together. Speaking of learning together, I'm going to bring a brand new episode to you next Friday to do that very thing. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week, folks. So many people ask me what a mastermind is. Does that mean in six weeks, I am going to be the best water treater that I can be through a training class? Folks, that's not a mastermind, that is a master class. 
What a mastermind is, is when like-minded people get together, we process issues, we form common bonds of friendship around each other, and we celebrate and push each other towards success. It is the key to so many people unlocking their potential. To find out more, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.